how about that Crossing Church? That's pretty awesome watching that, isn't it? Boy, God is not done. He keeps doing incredible work. So thankful to see what He is doing. Well, Crossing Church, how are you doing today? want to welcome everyone that's joining uh, all of our locations all across this area, inside and online. So thankful for each and every one of you. And I'm excited to be able to be here with you and to break the bread of life with you. It's always great to be in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord, learning the word of the Lord together. It changes us in incredible, incredible ways. Happy Father's Day! Happy Father's Day, Grandfather's Day, Great-Grandfather's Day. Nobody gets to uh, bark or complain at you today, right? And you get to eat where you want to. That's right. Should at least be, at least be that. So, uh, got a call a couple of weeks ago from a friend of mine in uh, Kansas City named Brandon Mims. It's a pastor there, and... Uh, uh, been a friend for a long time, haven't talked to him for a while, for quite a while, and uh, so he kind of calls me out of the blue and goes, I don't know uh, why I'm supposed to call you, but I just felt led by God to call you about somebody that uh, is on my heart, and I thought maybe you might be able to do something. I don't know what it might be. And he was telling me the story of a man named Martin Thomas, uh, who had been a pastor at, uh, in, in the Kansas City area, a friend of Brandon, was incarcerated, uh, broke the law, was incarcerated, came out, and then uh, God laid it on his heart to do these uh, halfway houses for men as they come out of incarceration back into the world and how they could be discipled and built up. And uh, as he was telling me this, I said, you know, we do that. We, have, uh, we, we partner with two ministries, the Well House and Fishers of Men. And we have different houses that accomplish that as well. He goes, that is, that is amazing. That he had no idea that we, that we did that and that we connected uh, with that. And he gave me the, the fellow's name and I gave him a call. And uh, just, a, just an incredible guy and doing incredible work both in Indianapolis, Indiana, and also in Fort Wayne. And uh, he, his ministry is called Nazareth Manhouse Ministries, which is... I go, that's kind, of a, that's kind of a mouthful. That's an interesting... And I was asking him about that. And he said, well, you know, there's a scripture in the Bible where Jesus is questioned kind of rhetorically. And the question that was delivered to him is, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? And he goes, that just fits us. Because so many people, they think, well, if you've been incarcerated, if you have this in your past, well then you're kind of damaged goods and maybe God can't use you or anything like that. And that's what they were kind of saying about Nazareth. And look what came out of Nazareth. It changed the whole world, changed my life, changed your life. And what God can do is he can change lives. And uh, I was just excited to hear his testimony. And so I went to the missions committee. I went to Clayton. I said, hey, what do you think? Could we help him out? So we sent him $6,000 to keep him going. And uh, hooked him up with some other uh, ministry people who might be able to keep him going after that because some of their uh, support had run dry. So uh, I don't think anybody likes it when they get labeled or they get discounted in some way. Like, can anything good, like if you're from Nazareth, like what are you? 
I think we're actually the opposite of that. Each one of us wants to feel special in some place, uh, some way. We want to uh, be noticed. We want to stand out. And uh, we try to make life choices to do that, right? It may be a group that we identify with. Maybe it's something in our appearance, like uh, the color we dye our hair, or how many colors we dye our hair. And uh, the language we might use, the music we listen to, the clothes we wear, the car we drive, the sport we like. And we can do that individually, and we can do that in groups, and we can even do that as a nation, right? We all want to be exceptional. We all want to stand out. I don't think anybody is saying, I would just like to be a C-minus kind of a person. I think everybody wants to excel in some way and stand out in some way. And I'm no different. I like to say that the crossing is the best church ever. I would love to hear you say the church is the best church. It's great. Right? I want to be exceptional in some way. I want to say we're the ones that this, or we're the ones that that. It's not to say that I'm casting judgment on others. I just want us to be the best that we can be. I want that for my kids. I want my kids to excel. I want them to be the best that they can be. Right? I want them to stand out. I want my grandkids to really stand out. You know? I want to make up for all the failings I did with my kids, right? With my grandchildren. I imagine you connect with some of this. Some of you are real sports enthusiasts. You want your team to stand out. You don't want them to have, a, have an even season where they have as many wins as losses, do you? You want them to go all the way to the end. You want them to win the big trophy. And sometimes it's hard. There's a lot of competition when it comes to standing out, right? Brands want sales. Social media wants clicks. Networks want ratings. They're all saying, stand out, stand out, stand out. We're in Romans chapter 3 now. The book of Romans is the Apostle Paul writing to both Jewish and Gentile Romans. Jewish being the nation of Israel and Gentiles literally everybody else. In the church in Rome, trying to help them understand these basics of what it means to be a Christ follower. And when you think about Israel... And we're in Romans 3, we're going to be talking about Israel. It, was, uh, it had a hard time standing out among the nations. It was just a tiny little nation compared to these huge, massive empires. And last week, uh, we learned a little bit about how the nation of Israel viewed itself and how it viewed its value and uh, how it kind of came into its own understanding of identity. Now, the glory days of Israel were about 1,000 B.C., about 3,000 years ago. And it began with King David, the, you know, the king who was a shepherd who became a king, and then his son Solomon. And the pinnacle of Israel as a nation, as viewed by the rest of the world, was during the reign of Solomon. And then it was downhill from there. After that, they became a more and more oppressed people until they were entirely oppressed 732 B.C., 586 B.C., they were literally deported out of the country and uh, they were enslaved. So they've had, uh, uh, they, had, they had that pinnacle and then these lower times. But what they did through all of that was they held on to their identity. It's what brought them through those difficult times. And it came in the form of a religiously rooted culture this Old Testament culture that came from Moses on the mountain, came from the, the patriarch Abraham, all of that. It came from 
this language, this ancient language, you know, Hebrew is still spoken daily in Israel, and it's one of the most ancient languages in the world. And it came from their set of laws and customs and rituals that they held on to through all of that time. The biggest part, though, of this identity or this feeling that they had was that they were understood, they understood themselves, and the Bible talked about them as God's chosen people. Like, God didn't choose anybody else. He didn't choose any of those other nations. He chose us. He chose Israel. He named it Israel. After Jacob's name, when he was changed, his name changed from Jacob to Israel. That was something that God did. It was a privileged position. And so they kind of felt like they had a golden ticket. A golden ticket to the one true God. Like everybody else, you can do whatever you want to do to try to approach God, but we are His chosen ones. We are His chosen people. And you see that resonating in these early chapters in Romans. If you've been doing the study, the devotional guide, you know that. You, you see how that's coming along. Now it is true that God did choose a people, and that people was Israel, and the Apostle Paul was one of those chosen people. He was Jewish, and God did have a special relationship with them. He had a covenant relationship with them. This is something a lot of us may not understand, but like you go back into the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 20. It's a famous chapter because that's the chapter that has the Ten Commandments that God wrote with His finger on stone and gave it to Moses who brought it down to the people. And a lot of people would say today, well, we all want to live by the Ten Commandments. And that's not bad because the Ten Commandments do reveal the heart of God, the justice of God. But did you know that that, that Decalogue, that Ten Commandments, was a covenant law? It means it was between the Jews and God. It wasn't between us and God. It was between the Jews and God. And when you read about it, there's actually a whole process they go, go through where the people adopt those laws as their own. And God says, on that basis, I will be your God and you will be my people. It was a covenant law with the nation of Israel. Some of us might get that a little mixed up. But did that make them better than you? No. Spiritually speaking, everything that was good came from God. It wasn't because of them. And they actually had less excuse before God than those uh, who were not in this special relationship because they had all the covenants and the promises and the rest of the nations did not. Now, how do you relate to that and how do I relate to that? Because we're going to spend time here in Romans chapter 3 and we're going, well... He's talking an awful lot about Israel, and I don't know how we really connect with that. Well, some of us have been Christians longer than others, haven't we? How many of you have been a Christian longer than 10 years? Yeah, a lot of you have, but some of you haven't. And so some might think, well, if I've been a Christian longer, you know, I'm a little bit more seasoned in my faith. I know a little bit more. You should kind of understand that about me. Some of us have Christian parents. So like, well, maybe we're not a dynasty yet, but, 
but we were kind of brought up to this. You know, we're second generation, third, maybe fourth generation, because we've had Christian parents and Christian influence that way. Some of us maybe come from a long line of professed Christians. Some of us may have actually been major players in the church, you know, maybe even held an office, maybe even had a title. You know how they, 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 put, the, they put up uh, pictures on the screens and then there's like a chiron below it, like, like worship leader or pastor or teacher or, yeah, elder or leader in some way. Maybe we get a title or held an office. Maybe we come from an influential church family. Maybe it was a financially powerful family. Maybe we were well-networked in the community, and so the church see us as really vital or important because of all of our uh, connections and networks. Maybe we were even on staff or are on staff. Maybe we've been professionally trained. Maybe we have a degree from a, a college that specializes in biblical knowledge. Wow. Maybe we think that makes us stand out. And we might get a little prideful believing our own press. We might think we're better than everybody else. We may think that God favors us. That we're in some sort of privileged position. So we can relate to what we're going to read here in a minute from Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul could certainly relate to that because he understood it all too well. Not only did he understand it, he actually lived it. He was a Pharisee. He was like the, the rising star of, of Judaism. I mean, he not only lived it, he literally killed for it. He put people in prison and had them put to death that were Christians because he was so committed to these beliefs of God's chosen people. But like a person who's overcome an addictive behavior, he's become so sensitized to it, he has no tolerance for it anymore. And that's why he, one of the main reasons he's writing Romans chapter 3. So let's begin together, okay? Verses 1 to 4. What advantage then is there to being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant law that God had with them. Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. That's true. What if some Jews were unfaithful? And there were plenty of them. You read about them all the time in the Old Testament. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. I mean, it's like he's setting these He's setting up there his readers right now. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And so the Jewish readers right now in the book of Romans are going, yeah, preach it, Paul. Let them have it, Paul. We're those people, Paul. Just because we've made some mistakes doesn't mean we're any less of God's chosen people. Yeah. But Paul also knows there's an argument that's going to start in their heads when he does the next part of the passage, starting in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? So, right, when we're, when we're bad, it just shows how good God is, because you see the contrast. That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? 
I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. I mean, does God have the right to judge us when we do things wrong? Does He have the right to punish us because there are these laws? Particularly the covenant laws of the Old Testament? If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim we say, let us do evil that good may result. Like the worse I am, it just shows how much better God is. And so when the Apostle Paul was talking about grace, the unmerited favor of God, and how you could have forgiveness of sins, and it wasn't based on your works, some people were interpreting that as, well, I can just be as bad as I want, because all that does is show how great God is. He goes, their condemnation is just. Hmm. All right, so he's setting this up right now. Now, I want us to see verse 9, because verse 9 is summing up those first eight verses kind of in a single sentence. Let's look at it. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage being Jews? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. So Paul is saying that doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're Gentile, doesn't matter if you have these covenant laws or God's promises, or if you're a person like most of us that are, that are listening to me now, a Gentile, which means you didn't have that growing up, or you don't have that covenant law like they did. We're all in the same boat, it's full of holes. And it's sinking. It's sinking in a sea of sin. Because we are all sinners and we're all in danger of drowning. Really? Drowning? Yeah, drowning. Drowning if you understand how God views sin. So what I want you to do right now is forget about how you view sin. Because the way you view sin oftentimes is, is like you rationalize it, you make excuses for it, you do comparative thinking, well, I'm, I've done this, but I'm not done that. Let's see how God views sin. So what Paul does here is he does a mashup of basically three Bible books, quotes. The book of Psalms, primarily, and also Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And he says this in verses 10 through 18. Listen, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. How are you feeling so far? Well, great. I came to church and you called me worthless, Jerry. No, I didn't. God did. Right there. Verse 12. <laughs> There is no one who does good, not even one. Did you brush this morning? Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Wow. Change your socks. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery 
mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And some of you are going, yeah, get those people, Jerry. You notice the pronouns in that passage? All the pronouns are they, them, and their. It's so nice to be able to pronounce judgment on everybody else like they do on social media. Isn't it? But what we understand when we read Romans 3 is this is really not they, them, and their. This is I, me, and mine. This is me. This is who you are. This is who I am. That's the hard truth. Now, I know we live in a post-truth culture where there's your truth and there's my truth and you do you and I'll do me. But the truth is that there is the truth and that's God's truth. And the truth about sin is the truth about you. Because we are sinners. It's the truth about us. And the truth is that you haven't just failed. Hear me now. You fail enough and that label becomes the definition of who you are. You haven't, you're not just someone who's failed. You are a failure. Thanks, Jerry. It's been great coming here this morning feeling the encouragement that is emanating from your words. Yeah. You're going to, I'm a failure? Yes, you are, and I am. I'm the guy standing up here telling you how to live your life, and I'm a complete, total, abject failure. We have all failed God's standard of righteousness, and like verse 9 says, we are all under the power of sin. It has power over you. It has power over us all. And just like verse 19 says, we are all accountable to God and we have no defense before God. Great. All those excuses, all those rationalizations, zero. Well, let's admit it. Romans chapter 3 is ominous. It defines a stark truth of who we are and what we've done and what we're presently doing. Just a failure in a sea of a world full of failures. And then, I'm so glad you stayed here till now because there are two little words, not Bible words, Not four-syllable words. (laughs) Not even what you might consider spiritual words. But these two little words change everything. And those words are these. But now. But now. Everybody say that with me. Ready? But now. Claim it as your own. But now. Yeah. Oh, and then everything in Scripture just turns on a dime. These two little words, they speak hope and change and victory into the darkness. But now, verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely 
by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Praise God. What does it say? As dark as the sin is, so bright is the light that dispels it. It was the whole plan from the beginning. Since I was and am presently powerless against sin, I can have access to a righteousness that is greater than my sin. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it, but now I have it. And it all became available to me and to you from Jesus and through Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Because when He shed His blood on the cross, He covered my sin. When He shed His blood on the cross, He purchased me. With His power, He raised me up. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raises me up. And freely, which means I can't earn it or purchase it, He gave me and He gave you His grace. Powerful. My preaching teacher in Bible college used to say, Jerry, before you ever get a person saved, you have to get them lost. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He wants you to understand the weight, the gravity of your sin, because that helps you to understand the value and the beauty of your deliverance through Christ and what He did for you and for me. I want you to go back to Romans 3.23. Powerful verse, often quoted, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's also probably one of the most misquoted scriptures in the Bible. Because people tend to want to quote it this way, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is not what it says. Because both of those verbs are not in past tense or past perfect tense. It says, for all have sinned and fall, present active indicative, fall short of the glory of God. That means this, all of us are sinners, all of us have sinned, but even right now, at this very moment where you sit or where I stand, at this very moment, you are in the process of falling short of God's glory, right now. You think you're good? You think you're doing something good? You think you've earned something? You think you have some divine privilege? Nope. You fall short right now. You fall short. And I fall short of the glory of God. This is not something that's just in the past. Listen, I have to believe that that's true. I have to own it. I believe it. I accept it. That's me. But that's not all. Because I have verse 24. Do you have it? I have it. Do you have verse 24? Or do you just have 23? Verse 24 says this, it says, And all are justified freely by His grace 
through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Wow. Hey, that's true. That's true. Through faith and the grace that comes from Jesus Christ, I have something even more powerful than the weight of my sin. That's true. I receive it. I believe it. I accept it. That's me. Only that's me now. That's me standing in grace. That's me receiving that by faith. That is the but now me. We all have the me who I was or who I am. But do you have the but now you? Have you accepted that? Have you come to Christ for that? In 1779, a poem was written, a very well-known poem. It was set to music 61 years later, in 1830, but it was often quoted before it was ever set to music, written by a man who captained a ship that trafficked in slaves. He wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, he's reading Romans 3 when he was writing this, wasn't he? Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Everybody say it. But now, oh, you see it? But now. I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Oh, he saw it. He figured it out. It's different now. I'm a failure. Oh, yes, I'm a failure. But now I have faith. I'm at a dead end, but now I have purpose and a destination. I'm powerless, but now I have the power that raised Jesus from the dead. I'm broken, but now I have someone to put me back together. I'm guilty, but now I'm pardoned. I'm dirty, but now I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm worthless, but now I am the pearl that He paid the great price for. I'm defeated, but now I have a champion. I'm I'm isolated and alone, but now I have someone who will never leave me or forsake me. I'm ashamed, but now I have a testimony. I'm dead inside, but now He lives within me. They're just two little words. Just two little words. But they make all the difference. They make all the difference. And all of the things that are holding you back and holding me back, all of the things that scream, you're not worthy of this. You don't deserve this. All of the self-justification and rationalization and comparative thinking all is blown away like dust in those two little words because they make all the difference. We're moving to a time of decision. What about you? Because it really all boils down to this. Is whether or not you've had a but now moment. See, there's a lot of you 
all of our locations, you right now here, you're still thinking that God is some sort of a Santa Claus God. You know what I mean by that? Making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. Like he's making a list of you. Like, I just hope I have more good things on my list than bad. There's still some of you that are still trying to buy your way into heaven, trying to earn your way into heaven, and you just can't. It reminds me of the very old story. Of course, a lot of old preacher stories have something to do with the pearly gates and St. Peter. And I don't know why he became the hall monitor, but he kind of did. And the guy that died, the Christian man who died, and standing at the front of that gate, and there's a sign over the gate that says, entrance requires 100 points. And he didn't understand what that means. He talked to Simon Peter about it, and he said, well, just tell me, tell me, what did you do? What did you do down there? So he begins, and he starts talking about all these things that he did, the way he raised his family, and relationship he had with his spouse and the way that he worked loved Jesus at home and Peter goes man you are making my day I mean I've had a lot of people up here today but wow that was awesome that's worth a point well that was a little disconcerting so then he started in saying all the things he'd done in the church and the offices he held and the money he gave and the people that he encouraged and the people that he witnessed to and the conferences he went to. And Simon Peter is blown away and he goes, wow, you are a smoking hot Christian, man. That is another point. Eventually, this man is reduced to the point where he has nothing left to say. And you know where this is going. To when he is completely humbled. And all that's left is to say, when I was a little boy, my Sunday school teacher talked to me about Jesus. And I told her that I wanted him to be my Savior and my Lord. I didn't know much, but I knew I wanted that. And Simon Peter said, 98 points. Because nothing else matters. The only thing that matters is what you do with Jesus. And right now, you have an opportunity. If you've been kicking the tires, it's time to start lighting the fires. Top Gun reference by that one. <laughs> There's going to be somebody right over there by that baptistry. That would be more than happy to talk to you about next steps. Because you don't need the Holy Spirit trying to influence you on the outside anymore. You need Him living on the inside. And He wants to come and live in your heart. And there's nobody standing in your way but you today. You go over there and talk to somebody. Some of you, well, you've made that decision for Christ. Oh, but that doesn't mean that you're not struggling in the lower story. It doesn't mean that the daily grind of this life isn't getting you down. And you're starting to wonder if God's even real. Or if He's real in your life. And you're at a crisis of belief. Well, that's what these steps are for. 
These steps are for you to come up here, humble yourself before God and remember that God isn't surprised by anything. That he's every bit as much now in control as he was yesterday and a thousand years ago. Some of you may not be carrying your own burden. Maybe you're carrying someone else's. And it's breaking you down. And you don't know what to do. You don't have the answer. Maybe you come up here because, Jesus, give me an answer. I'm going to clue you in. Jesus isn't going to give you the answer. He is the answer. He's the answer to every question. And when, when Jesus comes in, regardless of the storm outside, it's peace, be still, in your heart. Because that's what He can do and only He can do. So if you've had enough of the weight and the pressure of this world, and you're willing to come up here and just get down on your knees before God, nobody will bother you. Just take some time with Him. Turn the burden over. If you don't know Jesus yet, intimately and personally, why don't you let Him put the smile on your face that He put on all those other faces you saw just a little while ago? Well, I don't know if I could keep it up. It's not about that. He'll be with you. I told this last service. My kids were little and I, they were learning to walk. I remember when they would take a, like a step, just like one step, and then pff, they'd fall down. And I used to pick them up by their back collar and smack them real hard on the rear end, get in their face and say, You walk! No, I didn't. I did the same thing the rest of you did. They got that one step in front of them, and I got down in front of them so they could. I was on their level, and I started clapping my hands. And I said, You're so great. There's nobody as good as you. Because eventually, one step became two, and two became four. Before long, they were walking and then running and then getting into all kinds of other trouble. And we are his children. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let him do it. Would you stand with me? In Jesus' name, Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask, do what only you can do. Help us to stay out of your way and just yield, just surrender to the truth. Yes, this is who we are. But now, because of Jesus, everything can change. Everything has changed. Father, I pray that we would embrace that now. In Jesus' name, amen.